everyone. Welcome back to the Leadership Locker. Have you ever heard of Navy SEAL fatigue? <laughs> it's real. I think it's real. It's you being over listening to Navy SEALs and war stories and lingo and jargon and being like, hey, this is how you apply Navy SEAL-isms and Navy SEAL practices into your life or your business. Well, the best part of that is my guest is a former Navy SEAL. And by all accounts, and I've talked to a lot of people, people consider Rich Devinney, my guest, author of The Attributes, to be the best Navy SEAL they know. So I went up to Virginia Beach to interview Rich and super humble, super kind, super ridiculous smart, and just good to be around, man. Like, I mean, it was just like, we were just hanging out. It was so no pressure. I had no agenda at all, except making a great podcast for you and for him. But the thing is, he's the one who mentioned seal fatigue, which is why he wrote this book on 25 hidden drivers of optimal performance. Now there are some light correlations to the military and Navy SEALs. But this book, this book is about all these attributes that we are born with, that we have, that we've honed, that are not the same as skills. And it's all about leveraging them, recognizing them, seeing where you're proficient, deficient. And that doesn't mean you, you yourself are proficient or deficient. It means you possess these certain attributes that could help you perform optimally, not at your peak, which we get into peak performance versus optimal performance. And I'm literally, as I'm talking to you right now, I have stars, I have dog ears on this book, I have so many lines and highlights and, and just arrows, circles, underlined words. I mean, this is a perspective that I just didn't ever really consider. And his experience as a career Navy SEAL and as just a good human being, who is inspired by curiosity led him down a path to determine what attributes we possess. And here, actually, let me just open this and like read some of these to you. Okay, so here's some of the 25 attributes that he talks about. They're in categories, but the grit attributes, courage, perseverance, adaptability, and then resilience, mental acuity attributes, situational awareness or SA, compartmentalization, task switching, learnability, uh, there's the drive attributes, self-efficacy, discipline, open-mindedness, etc. So then there's leadership ones, there's team ability ones as well. Anyway, look, listen, you have to trust me. This is someone who has worked very closely with Simon Sinek. This is someone who has made waves in just putting a magnifying glass on the things that are inherently unique to us and how these can help us perform. This is the type of book that is going to help you recognize what you possess and what you don't possess. And I know that sounds like, okay, dude, yeah, like I, I get it. I took a Myers-Briggs. This is different. This is different. And then Rich, I think by the time this gets out, uh, I'm going to Arate Syndicate Summit in St. Louis with Ed Milet and Andy Frisella. It's a very, very small event, a uh, three-day event, but Rich is one of the speakers. And I, and I found that out as we wrapped up the interview. I was talking to him about, uh, you know, the influence that Andy and Ed have had on me. And he's like, I'm going to St. Louis to talk for them. I'm like, I'll see you there. So the circle gets smaller, but Rich is a fantastic guy. Please take a listen. This is what intelligence, humility sounds like. Here we go. 
Rich, so thank you so much for having me up here. It was a good drive and I had a lot of time to think about the attributes, okay? And I'm not a reader and I, and I kind of joked with you about that online and I'm like, look, I, I've just never really read. And now I'm in 10 pages at night, at least 10 pages in the morning at least, first thing or right after the gym. And a lot of the things I'm noticing from your book stood out to me and I'm like, we need to do an interview. Obviously you're a veteran and uh, you've done a lot of great things and we'll get into that in a second, but we're, we're gonna talk a lot just to remind you about entrepreneurship, veterans who wanna be entrepreneurs because 25% of veterans want to be own their own business and 2% actually do it. Mm -hmm. And that ties into a lot of what you're talking about. But uh, thanks for being on the show, number one. And two, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming up here. And um, and yeah, it's great to be a fellow veteran. So uh, I grew up in Connecticut and wanted to be a Navy pilot my whole childhood. Uh, I didn't find out about the Navy SEALs until the first Gulf War. And I kind of uh, read an article about them and then started really researching them and reading about them. And very few people knew what Navy SEALs were back then. So, <laughs> yeah. so they're all books from Vietnam and things like that. And But I recognize these guys were guys who did everything. They seemed to do everything, water, desert, uh, Arctic, all that stuff. And that really appealed to me. And so I went to Purdue University and ultimately decided, well, I didn't want to be a pilot and wonder if I could be a SEAL. So yeah. selected and got, fortunately got picked up, fortunately made it through training. And then spent just under 21 years in the teams. Entered in 96, retired in 2017. Obviously a very kinetic period where I learned a lot. I was was It was honored and, and privileged to be in a position of leadership or, or in charge, right, um, as an officer. But also ran training, learned a lot about uh, and became really fascinated with human behavior. Why do we behave the way we do? Yeah. And especially during times of challenge, uncertainty, and stress. Those That elemental you, you know, because... Because that's what we always say, that the real you shows up in those in those times. And so whether you're a military person in conflict or war, whether you're an entrepreneur starting out, whether you're someone struggling through disease, that's kind of to understand our behavior really helps us in our processes. So, so here we are. And how did this turn into, I need to write a book? I mean, there's fantastic people in the book uh, that clearly you've interviewed, that have studied, that have gone very granular into some of this. But... How did this become such an, I don't want to say obsession, unless it was, that it's like, I'm writing about it. Yeah, the, uh, the, as, as we explored the, the concept and the topics, I was partnered, I, you know, I'm good friends with a neuroscientist out at Stanford, Dr. Andrew Huberman. He and I met just after I retired, and we were talking about how and working on things uh, in, in, in kind of context of how people move through stress, challenge, and uncertainty. Uh, and so he's still uh, writing his own first book based on some physiological tools. And I was like, and we want to do something together, but I, we can't, we had to kind of do solo projects. So I said, well, I'll write something, thought about the attributes and realized that there's so much depth in, into which I could dive. And mm -hmm. the writing process was really very, I mean, magical almost because it, it allowed me to, to, to go into depth in these things. And once you get down on paper, it seems like, okay, that it almost gets out of your head. So makes room for new stuff, right? Someone, someone I <laughs> so, read a quote somewhere. I, I don't know what I'm thinking until I write it. Yeah. And yeah, I was like, yeah. I think that's therapeutic for people like it you. It is, yeah. <laughs> well, and honestly, like when you're staring at a blank cursor on a page and say, okay, how am I going to write 3,500 words on perseverance, right? What, yes. what am I going to, you know, it, it forces you. It forces you to kind of start start creating and asking questions. And so the process I found was highly, you know, enjoyable, mostly enjoyable. But there's certainly times where you're like, oh, I, I don't got anything, right? But, but, uh, but yeah, it was, a, it was a fun process. And the book was, it was fun because the book 
took shape and developed as I was writing it as well. So there's the version of the book now is not like what I had originally imagined, right? And that's cool too. Yeah. So then, and I know you've been on a lot of shows, but if you were, and this is a loaded question, but if you were to summarize someone like me or someone in this audience, like what this book or what we could take away from, you know, the pages, mm-hmm. uh, what can we expect to get out of it? Yeah, the idea is the book is about the reader. I didn't. I, I did not want to write a Navy SEAL book. I did not want to write a book about super performers. Yeah, they're light the references. Yeah, they really are. Because the idea was, can I write a book that is about the reader? Right. So when you read it, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna be thinking about yourself. The idea would be one of the best ways to explore our potential uh, is to first understand our own engines, um, because we are all human, but we all have. That we're all different, right? We're all like we're all automobiles, right? But some of us are Jeeps, some of us are Ferraris, some of us are SUVs. And there's no judgment because the Jeep can do things the Ferrari can't do, sure. and the Ferrari can do things the Jeep can't do. But but it is important for us to lift our hood and figure out what type of engine we have, because we may be a Jeep trying to run on a Ferrari track. Again, nothing wrong with that either. But you will begin to, if you are a Jeep trying to run on a Ferrari track, you'll start to understand why certain things might not be working. It'll give you an idea of those things you may want to work on and develop, right? So the attributes is one of those first steps in understanding how we show up to the game, you know, because they're elemental qualities. We are who we are. And if we are low in certain attributes, we can actually actively develop those attributes. It just takes some some self-motivation, some some self-direction, and some willingness to step into discomfort and uncertainty. You talk about the difference between skills Mm -hmm. and attributes, which seemingly can be easily confused. Yes. It's easy for me to confuse often, them. Yeah, and you have here, skills matter, but it's what informs those skills. So skills are learned and they're direct behavior and yes. easy to access, but attributes are not that. Right. They're hard to measure and they're kind of underneath. So so tell me the difference between skills and attributes. Yeah. I mean, skills, they get conflated all the time. Skills, we, we're not born with the ability to ride a bike or throw a ball, right? We learn those things. We can be taught those things. They direct our behavior. Here's how and when to do such a thing, mm-hmm. you know, ride a bike or, or, or drive a car. Because they're visible uh, and they're tangible, they're very easy to assess, measure, and test. You can see how well someone rides a bike, throws a ball, drives a car. Okay, the problem with skills is they don't tell us how we're going to show up when times get very challenging, very stressful, and especially uncertain, right? Because it's very difficult, if not impossible, to apply a, a known skill to an unknown environment, right? So we begin to lean in those times on our attributes, on these innate qualities. We're all born with all of the attributes, okay? Um, and they're inherent, right? So so you can see levels of patience and resilience and perseverance in small children. Yes. They certainly develop over time and environment helps. So it's a nature-nurture thing, but but they are innate. They inform our behavior. So our levels of perseverance and resilience, for example, or our, our kids' levels of that, inform the way they show up when they're learning how to ride a bike for the very first time. Yes. And they're falling off a dozen times. Because they're hidden in the background, they're very hard to assess, measure, and test. I can't sit down across from somebody at an interview, for example, and assess how perseverant they are mm-hmm. or how resilient they are. Right. So they show up most visibly and most viscerally during times of uncertainty, challenge, and stress, which made the laboratory that I had inside of which to kind of examine these things, which was I was running a specific SEAL training you know, event. Um, perfect, because SEAL, SEAL training and SEAL selection is all about challenge, uncertainty, and stress. So that's kind of how I learned about them. But in real life, we can, if we start to understand how we show up, which ones we have a lot of, which ones we have less of, we can start to better explain how and why we show up the way we do when things get rough. Now, this is perfect, because I didn't even think of this till now. If they're not easy to measure, mm-hmm. and you, as someone who's observing potential SEALs, 
is looking, or even that uh, CQB course or uh, whatever it was referred to, how someone you know clearly was trying to do everything they can, but it didn't work out. Is it possible to misjudge someone's attributes because they're hard to measure? You yeah. could be like, oh, this this guy's learnability is off the charts, but maybe you're completely wrong. Well, it is it is possible, and this is why this is why it's a to when you start to look at attributes, especially in a selection or assessment process you need to first understand what attributes you're looking for. Okay, that, you need to make that list first because those attributes then become contextual to whatever niche you're looking at. There's a list of attributes that's, that's really ideal for a Navy SEAL. The list of attributes that's ideal for a nurse or a teacher, they're gonna be different lists. And the context is gonna be different as well, right? I can't, for example, take a group of graphic designers out to the beaches of San Diego and throw them in the surf zone and exercise them with telephone poles to get a sense of how they're gonna do as graphic designers. That's the context is wrong. Even though we may be teasing some of the attributes that might be looking, we might be looking for, we need to tease them inside of the context of what we're talking about. So, so you have to understand the list first, and then you have to start thinking about the context inside of which you can tease these out. And it has to be contextual to the niche that you're looking for. Got it. So in the beginning, also, you, you mentioned one thing called the dream team paradox, and you had an example, I believe her name was Jennifer, um, of, of someone who had kind of assembled this dream team uh, for a project, and it started out smooth until there was the first bit of kind of adversity or, or an obstacle. And I was thinking about, I, I rarely watch sports anymore, but the Brooklyn Nets right now have this like really unbelievable team. You know, you could, you could almost say it's a dream team, but they haven't really had any kind of adversity. So the skills are absolutely there, but some of them have big personalities. Some of them can't stay off social media and avoid interacting with trolls and those kinds of things. But, you know, when it comes to assembling people based off their skill sets and not necessarily attributes, like what are the things that can go wrong there? Yeah, well, the, the, it's, the, it's the dream team paradox for a reason, because it's because skills are so visible and easy to measure, we, we're seduced by them all the time um, when we're selecting. It's really easy and kind of fun. Hey, of course I want the best person at this, the best person at that. There's a guy I referenced in the book, his name was Russell Lakoff, and um, he was a behavioral and systems analyst, and he's deceased now, but he used to say, hey, if you took the best part of every best automobile, right? So, for example, the BMW had the best steering column, Jaguar has the best engine, you know, uh, Jeep has the best suspension, you name it. You get the best parts of every best vehicle, you put them all together, would you have the best vehicle on the planet? And the answer is no, you wouldn't have a vehicle because they wouldn't <laughs> fit together. And he used to say, a system is never the sum of its parts. It's the product of their interaction. All right, this also applies to human interaction. Human interaction is inherently complex and dynamic. Any athletic coach will tell you that yes, they could have the best player in each position, but if the players aren't getting along, they're not going to win, right? And so this is where attributes start to, start to come into the fray. And sports is one of the most forgiving environments because sports is a, is a, is a known conditioned kind of set environment inside of which you skills really can. Skills, in fact, can sometimes and often outweigh attributes because, you know, depending on the sport, of course. But no coach for any sport will say, will tell you that attributes don't matter because they do, because there's human, there's human interaction, there's human dynamics. So... One thing I want to get at before we get into some of the attributes are, you know, you talk about peak performance versus optimal performance. And I really found this interesting. Like, I was literally running with my wife the other day and she said, you know, I, I, I was in peak condition. She was going to go to the world-class athlete program for, for the Army. And then she got pulled for a deployment. It was awful. It was this crazy story. And, and, I, and I was thinking, because I had just read that, that piece in the book about peak versus optimal what should we be striving for and what's the difference here? Yeah, so peak is an apex. That's all it is. And when you're, at, when you're at an apex, the only place to go is down. 
peak often uh, has to be scheduled and planned and prepared for. Okay, the again, the pro football player spends his entire week planning and scheduling, preparing to peak for three hours on Sunday. There's nothing wrong with peak, by the way. And yeah. if you can do it, do it, right? Uh, because the business person can do the same thing if they have to give a sales presentation or they have to plan or prepare. Um, the problem with peak is it doesn't set us up for success in all the other moments. Um, and this is why people used to say to me, well, you SEALs must be the, the best peak performers in the world, the ultimate peak performers. And I said, no, we're actually, in fact, not. We are optimal performers. We, an optimal performance is about doing the very best you can in the moment, whatever the best looks like in the moment, okay? Sometimes the best looks like peak, looks like flow states and things are clicking and all that stuff. Sometimes the best is, hey, I'm head down, just taking step by step because that's all I got. I'm just nugging it out. This, in fact, ex- describes military life a lot of times, right? SEAL training, combat, okay? This also describes working through a disease like cancer or studying for a PhD or to graduate or building a business, right? I mean, no entrepreneur would say with seriousness that they are peaking all the time. In fact, there's a lot of times where they just feel really low. They feel like they're not they're not making much progress. And all they have in that moment that day is, I just got to take a step today. That's all I got, right? That is optimal performance. Optimal performance allows us to modulate and allows us to say, Sometimes peak is great. I mean, but I don't need to be peaking when I'm driving to the grocery store, right? I mean, so so sometimes I can be at a level three or four, if that makes sense, and then I can plan to be at nine when I need to be at nine. But sometimes the environment will hit me with something that without my without any warning, without any control, it's gonna slam me down to level one. All right. And in those moments, if you can be taking a step, if you can just be doing one thing, mm-hmm. that's optimal performance and we should be celebrating that. And one more thing before we actually get into some of the grit attributes is you wrote it for the reader and you are saying that we should become familiar with our own attributes. How would someone make a list of of all the things? Like, would they literally go into the book and be like, here's all the attributes and just kind of go one by one? Or should they get help kind of selecting? And I I ask this because people always solicit feedback. I think people who are really self-aware say, Rich, tell me what you notice about me. Like, dude... You start out strong, but you never finish the job. I'd be like, okay, great. How does that play in? How would someone first even start to evaluate their own attributes? Yeah, the first is a self-evaluation. It has to be. Um, and, and we have to understand, again, like everybody has all the attributes, okay? Uh, the difference in each one of us are the levels to which we have each, right? So in adaptability, for example, if 10 is high and 1 is low, I might be a level 8 on adaptability, which means when the environment changes around me without my control, it's fairly easy for me to, to roll with it, right, and, and adapt. There are other, there's someone else might be a level three, which means when the environment changes outside their control around them, it's hard for them to, to roll with it. It's just mm-hmm. difficult. They're still adaptable. It's just really hard. Again, no judgment of that. It would be like judging our hair color, okay, just how we show up. So, so the first thing to recognize as you read the book is I have all of these attributes. The next question is, okay, how much do I have? What are my levels of each? Now, I have an assessment tool on the website that can give someone somewhat of a snapshot. Again, it's a snapshot only because it's a comparison to a bunch of other people. So someone has to take that. The idea behind the assessment is to really introspect and say, okay. And, and by the way, we all have a great example of this very recently in 2020 and COVID, yes. right? Yes. We were all thrown overnight into quarantine into deep challenge, uncertainty, and stress. And we can look back at our performance and ask ourselves some honest questions about how we, how we reacted, right? Were we adaptable? Did we roll with the new world pretty easily or was it very difficult? Were we stressed out? Did, how was our resilience? How was our drive? You know, what drive was, how was our, how was our self-efficacy? All these attributes. So understanding our own positions on each of the attributes first starts internally. And then it is, it is, 
it is valuable to solicit information and, and feedback from people who really know you mm-hmm. on some of these, uh, especially the leadership and team ability, because you can't, you, you're not allowed to tell how pathetic you are, right? Someone else <laughs> tells you that. But uh, but even some of the internal attributes, the grit ones, the mental acuity, the discipline ones, you know, my wife can help me with, hey, how resilient do I seem? You know, she may not be able to help me with maybe how courageous I am because fear is internal. Like no one really can tell if I'm afraid, right? But or the mental acuity attributes, no one can tell if I'm situation aware or whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah. But there are some in the grit categories and the drive categories that you should, you could, and can, and should elicit some feedback for. It's funny. I want to make this point because I thought it's important. If, if you evaluate and you inherently know that I have all these attributes and that I might be ones or twos here and maybe eights here, that shouldn't, that shouldn't upset you. Mm-mm, no. You know, uh, because, yeah, can you elaborate on that? Well, because, because again, we, it's like judging your hair color. Okay, we are who we are. And, um, and I, for example, my empathy as a human being, I would, I would rate raw, I would rate probably a five, okay, out of one to ten, okay? Because I'm kind of empathetic, but I'm kind of not. I, I, can be gu- I can be guilty of not caring a lot, right? So my wife, she's like a level eight or nine, to be honest with you. And so that's just how she's designed. Now, the beauty of our relationship is she's shown me the power of empathy, and I've been able to develop my empathy. So maybe you were two or three before her? I might have been. Who knows? You know, um, <laughs> but again, it wasn't you know, the, 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 what people have to realize is just because you're low on an attribute doesn't necessarily mean you have to develop it. You have to look inside your niche, right, and see if that makes sense. I love comedy, okay? I love comics because I think it's such a selfless entertainment profession. Who's your favorite comic? Oh, gosh. I mean, I, I, mean, <laughs> I, I couldn't. I mean, I love all of them, right? I, I've loved, you know, Jerry Seinfeld is an easy answer, but yeah. I, I just love Comedians in Cars because uh, yeah. I love how he deconstructs comedy with other comics. Yes. You know, I just, I, yes. I, so I really enjoy that. But the self, the comic, the stand-up comic, for example, doesn't need a lot of empathy, okay? In fact, too much empathy may be detrimental to his or her profession, right? Because how can you find funny at a funeral if you're too empathetic, okay? So, so just because you're low on something doesn't necessarily mean you have to develop. You have to look at your, the, the niche you're in, the pathway you're on, and ask yourself, okay, does this line up effectively with what I'm passionate about, with what I'm doing? And if the answer is yes, awesome. The answer might be no, and that's when you can start pinpointing pinpoint developing certain ones that will help you in your specific, you know, niche. If you're quote unquote, like, I don't want to say deficient, if you're low Mm -hmm. on some of the attributes and you are an entrepreneur, solopreneur, I'm imagining that would be pretty critical in terms of building your team. Yes. Uh, As far as, uh, like you said, if, if, if I'm low ish on empathy, then maybe I'm going to have absolutely eight, seven, eight, nines on in customer service. Uh, right. What people call with customer complaints or uh, a chargeback or something along those lines. Yeah. Would you agree? I, well, I would agree in two ways. First of all, you understand how you're going to respond and react, but also it helps you build a team. All right. If you are a solopreneur and you're saying, okay, I need to build, which is where I am at right now, I'm building this team, right? Now it's just my wife and I, which for, fortunately we, we mesh quite a bit. <laughs> but like, you know, you're going to want to, when you build a team, understand what attributes are necessary. And if you're low on them, find team members that are high on them Mm -hmm. because then they can fill the gaps, right? I mean, the the key to a high-performing team is, I I kind of say it, this this idea that, you know, vulnerability has to happen. And vulnerability is not just showing your weaknesses. There's a stigma that it says it's just showing your weaknesses. It's showing, it's being transparent about your your weaknesses and your strengths. You wear them all on your sleeve. This is what we experienced in the military, right? Because my buddy needs to know exactly what I'm strong at so he knows when to lean on me Mm -hmm. and then exactly what I'm weak at so he knows when he needs to support me, right? Um, Same goes for a team. 
team. You can start thinking about building a team through the lens of attributes by saying, okay, if I'm short on this, this, and this, and I don't like this and this, certainly I can develop them if I have time. But maybe I find team members that fill that gap. And then suddenly you have this symbiotic relationship that just like a rocket ship. You know? Always for optimal performance. Always for optimal so. performance. And peak when needed. <laughs> right? <laughs> so. All right, everyone, time for a quick break. This podcast is brought to you by my company. Hello, Rich Cardona Media. Look, starting a podcast, it's, it's been just about two years for me. And we finally have caught, like we've really caught thanks to you guys. And I know a lot of people who want to ride the podcast wave, so to speak. And you know what? I mean, you think because there's so many people doing it that there's no reason to do it. I'm here to tell you otherwise. I'm here to tell you that I can help you determine what it is that you should be talking about, what it is that, you know, your podcast can be, what it might look like. But more importantly, I'm here to take all the work off your hands. My team and I are ready. We are ready to support you and get you to the point where you sit down, you record your podcast with a guest, with a co-host, by yourself, whatever it is, you upload it to us, and then we're going to take care of it, period. I don't want you to do all the heavy lifting. I now know what it, what it's like. I have the processes streamlined to take it off of your hands, okay? If you are interested in starting a podcast, if you don't want to worry about it, if, if the reason you are not doing it is because two things. One, everyone's doing it. They usually fade out, by the way. And the other reason is you have no time. Let me eliminate those two excuses for you. Hit me up at info at richcardonamedia.com or you could always DM me on LinkedIn or Instagram. That's at richcardona underscore. Let's get back to the show. So the attributes, there's there's 25 of them, however, but they, they kind of fall into categories. So they're not scattered. They're organized at least a little bit. Uh, can you explain what the categories are? Absolutely. And the categories was one of those things that that showed up as I was writing. You know, I had not... I not I'm glad you I, had. I, yeah, I had not previously planned to bend them that way, but they began to clump. And I was like, actually, this is pretty cool. It and makes so, it easier to read too, and, by and the way. Totally. And right, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> you know, so, um, and again, there's more, there are more than 25 attributes out there. This is not an exhaustive list. But the categories broke down into kind of behavior, right? So first it's the grit category. Okay, what are the attributes that make up grit? So many people think of grit as, a, as its own attribute, mm -hmm. but it's not. It's, it's a combination of several things. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and we know that based on experience. We know that based on research. Angela Duckworth wrote a great book called yeah. Grit that said, hey, it's a bunch of things. I looked at it from an attribute perspective. And so the grit attributes are courage, perseverance, adaptability, and resilience, those four. Um, those combined make up grit. And grit is the ability to kind of push through, especially those smaller, short-term challenges, roadblocks, whatever they are. That's kind of like the, the ability to kind of push, gut it out, whatever. Um, so that's great. Mental acuity uh, speaks to how our brain sees and processes the world, right? So, so there are four there, situation awareness, compartmentalization, task switching, and um, learnability. Um, this is really how we take in information, how once we take it in, how we process it and prioritize it, how we switch between categories and contexts, you know, and the, the ease with which you do that, and then how we absorb it. Speaks to performance, and especially to, depending on what you're doing. Drive attributes, uh, it speaks to, whereas grit is probably can be described as kind of that short-term burst, like I'm gutting it out. Drive is more, speaks to kind of long-term, you know, setting long-term audacious goals and making them happen, right? And there are five in there. There's self-efficacy, there's uh, discipline, there's open-mindedness, there's cunning, and there's narcissism, you know, and some surprises I know. Then there's leadership, the leadership attributes. 
people conflate being in charge with being a leader all the yes, time. Yes. They're not the same thing. One's yes. a noun and one's a verb because leadership <laughs> is a behavior, not a position. And we don't get to call ourselves. We don't get to self-designate. It'd be like saying I'm good looking or funny, right? <laughs> other people say that, right? I don't get to say that. Um, so other people decide whether or not we are a leader. Um, though It's based on those behaviors and those behaviors stem from these attributes. Um, so empathy, accountability, decisiveness, authenticity, and selflessness. Those are the five. Okay. Those behaviors tend to allow other people to designate someone a leader. Okay. And then team ability. We also don't get to call ourselves great teammates. Okay. Other people do that. And those behaviors are integrity, humility, conscientiousness, and then humor. Uh, those those four. And so those are the attributes that fall in categories. So there, I had three others that are, I, I call the others in the book because they didn't bin properly in these categories. And we can talk about it if we want, you know, we can go down that that pathway. But basically, those the reason why they're called the others is because the polarities of each um, both have positives, right? So whereas, whereas most of that other list of attributes, the more the better, mm-hmm. with exception, too much of any are, are you know, are, is bad. But these, these ones, such as patience, the polarity wasn't necessarily bad, right? In other words, there are very highly successful people who are impatient, and there are very yes. highly successful people who are patient. Same with competitiveness and non-competitiveness, and then fear of rejection versus insouciance to what people think, right? So those are the others we could, you know, talk about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but yeah, those those are the five categories, and that's how they've been. Perfect. Well, and I told him on the way up here, I was like, I'm I'm not done, but I already know a a bunch that I want to talk about in regards to entrepreneurship. So so the first one uh, in the grit attributes is courage, and it's ability to manage fear in order to confront danger. So you talk about fight, flight, or freeze, and I actually saw you talking on Ed Milet's show about that. But the line that stood out to me above all else was courage cannot exist in the absence of fear. Right. Uh, can you elaborate on that? Yes. When fear shows up in our system, it's a, it's, it's basically our amygdala uh, registering threat and starting to jack up our sympathetic nervous system. That can go all the way to what's called amygdala hijack, which is we're now operating without thinking. Our conscious mind, our frontal lobe, begins to come offline a little bit, and we just start reacting. This is designed in human evolution for survival, okay? Without thinking, we are running. That, that'd be the, or we're fighting, right? So, so, but again, we're not, not all of us all the time are, are in that full-blown survival mode. Fear and anxiety start to show up and we, we are given a choice, okay? We can either fight or flight. Freeze is in fact an oscillation between the two, yep. neurologically. So, so we choose either one. Depending on what you choose, which one you choose, there's a specific circuit in the brain that gets tripped, okay? If we choose to fight, which means step into our fear, when that circuit's switched, we get a dopamine reward. The neurotransmitter, very powerful, says, this is good, this feels good, keep going, okay? By evolutionary design, again, because we are explorers, we're endurance creatures, you know, we are designed to go out and explore and discover and find new territory, find new whatever. It's what's caused us to go from, from cave dwellers to space explorers, is this, is this idea that every time we step, and this doesn't mean we're achieving our goal, okay? It means every single step into our fear, we're getting a dopamine hit which is really powerful because it starts to reframe courage. That is courage defined, okay? It doesn't exist if there's no fear, right? If you are not afraid, if fear is not starting to tickle that amygdala, then that courage switch is inaccessible, okay? Well, I wanted to add, I'm so glad you said all this because, well, you're an entrepreneur, I'm an entrepreneur now, but I remember the moment where I quit my job and I was like, okay, I was doing the math and I'm like, well, I'm gonna have to live with my in-laws for a little bit. And I wasn't scared, I wasn't fearful, but I was confident mm-hmm. until the timeline started getting extended. I'm like, how am I going to land this first client? 
And now I see, and I'm not self-designating myself as courageous, but I can absolutely validate the courage circuit. And it's just like, okay, there is absolutely a dopamine hit to the point where you eventually get unafraid of some of the objections that you know, or the new things that you're going to confront in, yeah. in a kind of an unknown environment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the courage circuit, I could validate a thousand percent. And yeah. I'm, I'm sure you've had some of the same experience. Totally. I mean, writing a book. <laughs> writing a book. Well, so let's just talk about it. Just something unique to us and unique to all the veterans who are listening to this who want to be entrepreneurs. Because it's going to be, because it, when I say this, everybody's like, oh yeah, okay. There's going to be one thing that most of us fear coming out of the military, moving into entrepreneurship. What is it? It's being alone, okay? Because we're coming from this society, whether it's SEAL teams, Marines, Army, of, of, of mutual friendships and mutual support. I mean, everything about the military is like, oh, someone's got this for you, someone's doing that for you, I don't have to worry about medical. Everything's supported, right? We're suddenly hopping out, and we're exposed, and we're on our own. There's no support, right? Number one thing that we're going to have to push through our fear as a veteran entrepreneur is that idea that I have to go it alone. I have to be courageous to go it alone. I feel it. I still feel it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, same. And, and, and it's, it's huge because again, we can say, well, military, you guys, you know, we all, you guys and gals are used to dealing with fear. Well, being used to dealing with fear is different than actually dealing with fear that you haven't experienced. Fear is always going to be new. It's always going to be novel because it's making you afraid. Um, whether or not you're, you've inoculated yourself to it is a different story, right? Yeah. You can inoculate yourself to a certain fear if you just do it over and over and over again, right? Mm-hmm. I, can, I did this with my fear of heights as I, you know, as I could. Yeah. I just climbed the cargo net as much as I could, got up there, right? But being alone is different, you know? And so you have to continue to do it. And yes, courage is going to, in fact, have to exist because you're going to be pushing through fear. Now, again, one thing about fear, fear is by evolutionary design to also allow us to appropriately assess risk. Okay. I hate the word fearless. Okay. And in fact, I called the chapter, beware the fearless leader. (laughs) Fearlessness is dangerous and it's irresponsible. Okay. Fear is designed to tell ourselves there's risk here, pay attention. Okay. And we need to pay attention because that's important. It doesn't mean we have to retreat, but sometimes the, the, sometimes flight is the right response, right? I mean, we all know this. I mean, shouldn't fight a bear. I mean, that's a bad mistake, right? So, so we, so it's on us to choose the right response. Sometimes fleeing and flighting, I always call it kind of a tactical withdrawal. You're just retreating for a moment so you can get your breath and maybe attack it again. So you don't have to talk about quitting or anything. But sometimes that's the right choice. But yes, we are going to have to step into it. But recognize once you do, it'll feel good. It'll feel good every step. Last thing on that was. The freeze portion, it's really interesting to read in the book how you articulate it because there's certainly been moments where I've just been frozen in my tracks or where you've seen other people freeze. You're like, why aren't you doing anything? You know, that kind of that bystander effect thing. And it now makes complete sense. You're oscillating. Like maybe the intent is there, but the motion is not. Like nothing's actually propelling you forward or it's the opposite. You're going in kind of fearless and maybe not mitigating any risk. And maybe that's coming from a different part of of some of the attributes that you have. But I thought that was fantastic. So perseverance, this one was huge, uh, obviously, when it comes up to entrepreneurship. So constancy in doing something despite difficulty or delay in achieving success. And I believe this is unbelievably relevant to entrepreneurship and some of the most successful entrepreneurs. Like I I listen to Ed, I listen to uh, Andy Frisella, and none of them make any anecdotes about how fast it is. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is a very delayed delayed kind of 
uh, evolution. Yeah, gratification. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and 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 I think the perseverance goes hand in hand with that. So, yeah. what would you? What was your assessment on that? Yeah. So there's two. I think there's two attributes we should talk about in, in terms of entrepreneurship. There's yeah. perseverance and there's discipline. Yeah. And we'll talk. We'll take each Perfect. one. Okay. Perseverance really speaks again because it's in the grit towards those short term, like, hey, I gotta gut it out. I gotta make this happen. Right. Short. A little bit more short term. And again, there can be argument where it goes long term. But I think when I when I describe discipline, there's perseverance inside of discipline. Mm-hmm. Perseverance breaks down into three things. It breaks down into persistence, tenacity, and mental fortitude, fortitude, basically. Those are different. So I'm into semantics like, because I think semantics yeah, yeah. provide clarity. If you start <laughs> if you just like taking words, say, hey, what does this actually mean? Yeah. It helps us clear it up. And when you provide clarity, you can then you can tell more people about it, right? So persistence is this idea that, you know, I'm going to try something to solve a problem and I'm going to just be persistent in that solution, okay? Yes. It's the stone cutter approach, yep. right? I'm going to tap that rock and after it's nothing's going to happen until the 101st tap and then it's going to break, okay? You need persistence in the stone cutter approach and sometimes you need it in perseverance holistically. Sometimes that's patience. Persistence is patience, right? Sometimes you need tenacity, okay? Tenacity is impatience. <laughs> you know, tenacity is, hey, I'm going to try something. If it doesn't work, I'm going to try something again, right? This is the car mechanic who says, I'm going to figure out the problem. I'm going to check the belts. If it's not the belts, I'm going to move on to something else. If the car mechanic were persistent, the car mechanic would check the belts and then check the belts and then check the belts, mm-hmm. accomplishing nothing but jacking up your bill, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes tenacity is required. It requires impatience. Um, both of those are buttressed by fortitude or really mental fortitude, the ability to mentally, A, modulate between the two and then just push through okay mm-hmm. be persistent and be tenacious when needed but also understand the difference so that's kind of the short-term thing that entrepreneurs need to know because there are going to be challenges that you have to push through discipline holistically the way i talk about it in the book as an attribute is this idea of long-term objective mm-hmm. okay different than self-discipline i had to separate that because self-discipline is internally focused and it's it's with regard to things that you can accomplish and achieve that the external world has no control or say in, right? Losing 10 pounds. Losing 10 pounds, eating healthier, right? I mean, regardless of the external, you and I could could say, hey, we're going to lose 10 pounds and get in shape. But then we go to Vegas and go to the buffet. It's on us whether or not we choose the vegetables or the the pastries, right? It's self-discipline, okay? Some people are highly self-disciplined. The reason why I had to separate this, by the way, is because I recognize that there's people with two with, with yeah. the opposites. I am not a very self-disciplined person. It's very difficult for me, but I'm pretty disciplined, you know, long-term. Long-term discipline, discipline holistically is the ability to set and achieve long-term kind of audacious goals. Um, this means uh, the external world has a say, okay? This is becoming an ABC SEAL or a Marine. This is beco- this is uh, writing a book. This is, you know, getting that promotion, you know, or becoming, the external world has a say in that. That's That means there's going to be ups and downs that are inflicted upon you that you have no control over, right? Discipline holistically is your ability to push through and not get crushed by the lows, but also not get seduced by the highs because sometimes success can take you off track as well. So you need both for entrepreneurship because if you're looking at the long-term goal, Long-term discipline requires grit holistically and perseverance is part of those, you know, those births. So let me just make sure I circle back on this the right way. So I might be incredibly self-disciplined. I might do exactly what I do. And this is part of my routine. I get up at four, I'll read or go to the gym, one or the other. And then I finish. And I do the second one after that. I have my dedicated time with my kids. Then I do engagement on LinkedIn or wherever it may be. I have all these blocks and I'm in bed at 8.30, hoping to be asleep by nine and all these things. I eat well. I take care of myself. That's all self-discipline. It's something that I know could benefit me and I know I can achieve. However, the external factors may 
are going to be far less forgiving. So if you are incredibly self-disciplined, how do you kind of make amends with the fact that there's going to be a lot of shit that's not going to go your way? Yeah. You would expect, I'm just saying, you expect like the world yes. should reward well, me. Well, the, the, so I call the chapter the self-disciplined loser for a reason. And the reason is because sometimes someone who is overly self-disciplined, um, that implies an expectation of routine. Yeah. Okay, and patterns. Okay, self-discipline is easier when you create patterns around it. Okay, that's how I that's how I hack my own self-discipline. I create patterns. Okay, but self-discipline at a really extreme level is all about certainty and patterns. Okay, well, no entrepreneur is going to ever say that the pathway to success has any sort of pattern or predictability. It's highly uncertain, which means the very very self-disciplined person can sometimes get trapped in not wanting to achieve that long-term goal because it's going to inflict uncertainty and break patterns, okay? The balance, the best balance is to have a little bit of both, okay? Because, you know, because, but we all know, we, we know those people who are very, they're like, everything about their life is structured and disciplined, but they can't get their life to go anywhere, yes. right? Then we can see people who are like, like enormously successful, but their lives are like completely a mess, right? You know, so rock stars might be in that category, some of them. Public right? success, private yeah. failure. That's exactly right. <laughs> so so the, the best is the balance. And really the idea is to understand what's where you're high and low on each of them. Um, and then and then work those. You know, I am typically low on self-discipline. It's hard for me. Okay. So what do I do? I try to I try to set up routines. Mm -hmm. I try to hack myself. So that so, so that self discipline becomes easier, yeah. you know, setting small rewards, you know, for for things that are internally focused, right? But externally, I'm pretty good because those long term goals, I'm really, I'm pretty adaptable, I'm flexible, I go with the flow, and I'm okay with the with the uncertainty and the unknown, right? So so it's really about understanding yourself so you can balance the both. I just want to mention this part about perseverance, which you talk about constancy in doing something despite difficulty or delay. That's his cat, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> it's all good. Yeah. Um, when someone comes up with a possible solution to a task or problem and then stubbornly sticks to the process, regardless of whether it is flat or inefficient, that like saying to me, because that stubbornness, I feel like is an incredible requisite in yeah. this world. Like yeah. it just has to be. I, I plan on things. Gary Vee talks about this sometimes where he goes, I secretly hope that I lose all my money so that way I'd have to figure out how to get it back, right? right? Because right. like he'd have to start practicing different inefficiencies. Like he's gotten to the point where he recognizes things in the marketplace better than a lot of people, right? So I thought that was really awesome. But I want to get into resilience, which is, uh, this was a little bit challenging for me, I have to admit, returning to an emotional and, or, and mental baseline after stress or trauma. So I'm like, okay, uh, how am I going to talk to Rich about this? I'm like, well, I could tell him how bad it hurt when my first client ever left. Right. But now, a year and a half later, when a different client left and they all mean the same to me, I was I bounced back, Bounce back faster. in about 48 hours. Yeah. Like, what is that about? Yeah, resilience is, is, again, it's the ability to get knocked off baseline and get back to baseline. We all have this kind of baseline level of well-being and happiness, okay? And we all get knocked off of it, and then we get highs and lows, right? Our lives, if that baseline were kind of a line, our lives are a series of, of ups and downs, okay? Um, the ability to kind of get back to baseline rapidly and efficiently is, is resilience. Um, the idea is the faster and more efficiently you can do that, the more effectively you'll be able to persevere because we all know that if you get knocked too far off of your baseline and you aren't able to bounce back fully, then you start at a deficit. That delta never leaves, and it only increases. So just to take a number scale, if baseline is zero, you get knocked down to negative 10, okay, and you're only get able to get back up to negative five, okay, well, 
your baseline has now shifted to negative five because the next time you get knocked, it's going to be it's going to be even worse. The same goes for up, although up is better because that's kind of anti-fragility. However, we still have to understand that even successes, if we're unable to get over ourselves a little bit, mm-hmm. right, will risk arrogance. You know, but resilience can be practiced. You know, again, we're all going to get knocked down. Yeah. I mean, look, 2020 is a perfect example yeah. of that. The, the environment's going to throw things at us. The, the more we can practice resilience, the better off we are. So I talk about kind of little, little tragedies. There's so many little tragedies in our lives that happen every day that we can practice resilience on. This is the spilled milk. This is the, <laughs> the traffic jam. This is the, the spat with the, with the loved one, right? The, you know, the little things that we can practice kind of getting over faster so that when the big stuff happens, we're, we're better equipped, okay? Not saying, again, the big stuff that happens is going to take a lot longer, and that's just the case, and it should be. You might even need help to do it, right? And that's okay. But you have to, to be able to practice the little stuff is actually very effective. You have a point here. I have fire emojis next to it, which means I have to talk about this. You know, it's possible to confuse resilience with durability. Yeah. It's possible the person who has a high capacity for suffering and enduring and pretending to be happy, which is not the same thing, which is crazy because I do believe that's true. So can you explain like why durability is kind of a false horizon? Yeah, I mean, durability is just toughness, okay? And just because something's tough doesn't mean it doesn't get beat up over time. So the idea is it's definitely good to be tough, but but this is the trap that high performers can sometimes fall into because high performers typically love that feeling of success, of accomplishment, of overcoming, okay? And and what happens is after that happens, like, okay, awesome, what's the next thing? And they jump immediately back in the next thing. What they fail to recognize is the the, the, the need for recovery, okay? Uh, recovery is huge nowadays. We understand the power of recovery mentally, physically. I mean, we've always really understood it. Anybody who lifts weights understands recovery, right? You go and you lift weights, you're tearing the muscles, okay? You have yeah. to wait a few days before you lift again, okay? If you and I went and benched three times a day every day, our muscles would, would get crushed, right? This so goes with any type of, of trauma or something bad happens. We have to, or even, even a success, because you're typically to gain success, to achieve success, you are, you are really working hard. So there's wear and tear, if not damage on the system, to achieve that success. If you don't allow yourself to recover from that, your system will fall into entropy, right? So this is why high achievers can sometimes fall off the cliff, right? Because they're like, achieve, achieve. She's like, well, how that person? Well, they never... They never took time to recover. A lot of SEALs would fall in that category because we, until we found out about recovery, guys were just going over, you know, over and over and over. It's just they were always on. What about the happiness aspect of it, mm-hmm. though? Because I thought that was really interesting because I believe you can be resilient and durable or whatever it may be doing something you're not happy with. I, I did it for two years after my first job out of the Marine Corps. And it, it got to the point where a catastrophic event essentially was needed to just kind of free me from that. And I realized, wow, it all came raining down. Mm-hmm. Like, I was a terrible father. I was a terrible husband. I was. What am I doing? Mm-hmm. Durability and, and happiness, or at least recognizing that something is emotionally gratifying to you. How do, how do you make sure that you are able to recognize that and pause for that second to determine if it's worthwhile? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the key is to start to be more uh, in tune with our feelings, okay? Because again, this is another... This is coming from a Navy SEAL. Yeah, but there's another, there's another trap that a lot of high, high performers fall into, the, the, the idea that feelings can be detriment to, to high peak performance and success, okay? Um, and admittedly, they can if you let them, but they can also be an enormous booster. I mean, joy and um, passion will boost performance way, mm-hmm. 
faster than anything else. You know, so feelings are very powerful. Feelings are also internal. They are our internal response, and largely, if we're able to consciously think through them, our choice. And then the choice comes from this ability to frame the environment. Okay, um, we can look at an environment, and if we can do it consciously and try to try to kind of see through and examine our emotions, we can begin to say, okay, what. What can I be happy about? You know, what what how can I how can I kind of control my physiology? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think when you're when you're talking about environments, it's our responsibility to understand what emotions do. Emotions generate biological and neurochemical responses in our system mm-hmm. um, we, because they're they're accessing our or they're they're being affected by our parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system, which means we're we're when we're angry and and sad and depressed, we're we're generating cortisol, mm-hmm. you know, and when we're happy and joyful and peaceful, we're generating DHEA. Cortisol Again, a great chemical to get us moving, but does damage to our system or, or a lot of wear and tear. DHEA, on the other hand, rebuilds everything. Okay, mm-hmm. joy, peace, happiness, fulfillment. DHEA mm-hmm. is getting created. You know, anger, frustration. You know, even apathy and depression. Cortisol is getting created. So, so to recognize how important feelings are in our neurochemistry will allow us to say, well, I need to now deliberately find joy, peace, and happiness, yeah. right? And do that more regularly and more often. And you can do that inside of an environment that's that's pretty rough, right? You just have to try to find those moments to do it. Okay, so I want to wrap up in the mental acuity attributes, uh, just because those are top of mind for me. But, you know, there's situational awareness, which we could probably skip, uh, although I have my own feelings on that, compartmentalization and, and task switching. What's really interesting is I was talking to my wife about this and I'm like, compartmentalization to me is different than how he explains it. And she's like, you just have it confused. I'm like, oh, here we go. But, you know, compartmentalization means, especially someone coming from our background is like, you know, so-and-so was here yesterday and they're not here today. That cannot be at the forefront of your thoughts anytime you have to continue to execute. Right. And, and I think it was you, I think it's in this book where I think you mentioned like in the movies, like there's not all this time and it's not slow motion to recover right. from something catastrophic right. that happens instantaneously, like you keep going. So compartmentalization to me was kind of just storing things away that were not necessarily relevant. She's like, he is saying that. Yeah. So can you expand a little bit on compartmentalization and how it kind of ties into entrepreneurship? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I actually talked to one of my great buddies who's a psychologist who I've known for years and uh, was a psych there at the SEAL teams. Um, and we talked about compartmentalization. And you're right, compartmentalization is a bit complex. And the psychology field will will talk a lot about compartmentalization much, much more in depth than you and I could. But ultimately, even in my conversation with my buddy who's a psych, it came down to the ability to understand in the moment, what to focus on, okay? Now, what that means is, ultimately, you're you're basically, when all this information is coming in, you are immediately assessing it, saying, okay, ba- based on all of this stuff, what's relevant to my situation now? Mm-hmm. Then you're prioritizing it. Okay, I'm gonna take that list and say one through five, and then you're picking the first one and focusing on that. This means that, yes, when you're in combat and a buddy goes down, unlike in the movies where they stop for two, three minutes and play a sad song while the guy cries, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, you are saying, I can't think about that right now. I have to win the fight, right? Because priority trumps everything else, right? So, but we do this in life too. And, and the ability to kind of understand in the moment what your immediate outcome is, assess it, prioritize it, focus on, on what you need to focus on. And then as soon as that's either accomplished or needs to switch, you then switch. Mm-hmm. That's the act of compartmentalization. And the people who are really great at it 
find themselves often in professions like we did because the environment can get very, very intense, mm -hmm. but you're able to not break focus, right? So it's funny, you know, here in this neighborhood, I have a seal who lives across the street. I have a seal who lives down there, down the road to the left and one that lives to the right. My wife used to say, she's like, I love the fact these guys are in the neighborhood because if anything ever happened, I could go to them and they'd act exactly like you act. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, as soon as I'd tell, if, if something happened, I could tell them the problem, they'd immediately calm down and they'd start working the problem. Yeah. And I realized that's, that's a quality of SEALs and you know, Marines and anybody who's, who has to be in combat. When something happens, you immediately ask yourself, okay, what do I need to focus on right now? Okay, what's the most important thing? And you do it, you know, and then you do that, and you realize that you have stepped over or put aside some of those other things that may have dominated you or hijacked you. Yes. Um, this is why, you know, loss in the military can actually have such detrimental effects because in the moment, if you don't have time to actually access and, and mourn it, right, uh, because you're focused on winning the fight or whatever, if you don't later come back, and do that effectively, it's going to build up, right? It resurfaces so, yeah. at so, an yeah. unlikely moment. That's I mean, right. So, so guys like us can can really recognize, and we've seen this is to the ability to compartmentalize too effectively can actually be detrimental because we're able to put things aside and focus on what we need to focus on, mm -hmm. and never take the time and the space to say, okay, all that bad stuff that happens, I need to revisit that <laughs> and go through my morning process, yeah. right? It's, so it comes with a warning. You have an unbelievable analogy of being at the airport and being late for a flight and, you know, you see the Chili's and the Hudson News and, and there's all this information and you talk about like what's relevant and what's not. Uh, and I thought it was a fantastic example. In entrepreneurship, I think, let's just say you are not going to meet your sales goal. And if you can't meet your sales goal, then you're not going to make payroll. So at that moment, I think it's moments like that where you have to look at everything that you're doing that day and be like, is this moving me closer to that goal or not? Like, does the website colors really matter right, right now? Right, right. Do I need to take on this conversation with someone who had some video questions today? Yeah. yeah. The answer is fuck no. Yeah. The answer is I need to get on the phone and, and reach as many pe people as possible so that way I have opportunities. Yeah. So I think it's hugely important for compartmentalization. If you get the book, that's one part you really want to read. Now, multitasking is a myth. Can you talk about multitasking? And this was, again, confusing for me, especially as a former aviator. I was like, I told my wife, I'm like, I used to multitask all the time. So it's not a myth. But then you talk about, yeah. and she says, I know the same thing to be true, which is when you multitask, you're actually doing those things poorly collectively. Yes. Yeah. So can we kind of talk about that? Yeah. Well, so the neuroscientists will say, uh, especially my buddy Huberman will say that multitasking is a myth, but there's a neurologically you can, you can hold focus and maybe hold semi-focus on, on like one other thing, maybe. Okay. But ultimately what's happening is we're, we're, we're shifting focus. Now, the reason why we think we can multitask sometimes is because we often do things that we're doing two things at once, right? All of us will admit, I can listen to a podcast and drive a car, okay? However, it doesn't count when you've relegated those skills to the unconscious, okay? Mm. You're driving a car and you're flying a plane. A lot of that activity, you're doing unconsciously without thinking, which means you can pay attention to something else. I guarantee you, if we're driving a car, listening to a podcast, and someone swerves in front of us and we have to swerve and you know, whatever, it's a big mess, you will have to rewind the last 15 seconds of that podcast <laughs> yes. because immediately your focus shifted to the, the current moments. That what, happened to the, the day yeah. when a cop was behind me. <laughs> yeah. I, was, I was listening to something and I was like, I have to rewind. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, so in effect, you task switched, right? And yeah. you stopped focusing. Okay. So multitasking, we can think we're doing it, but it's, it's most likely because whatever else we're doing or we can do, we've garnered the, the unconscious competence to do that skill without thinking. 
task switching is really what happens. That's the ability to shift in between tasks neurologically. In the, in the inside of a car, this could be I'm steering, suddenly I'm braking, suddenly I'm whatever. Of course, a lot of that's subconscious. But even, even when you get out of your car and you, you, you're walking in a parking lot, the, the context around you, the category is switched, right? And then you go into the store and then it's switched again. So our brain is constantly neurologically swapping between yes. activities and between environmental contexts, um, which is fine. That's totally normal. It's just we have to know it's neurologically taxing, okay? Mm -hmm. One of the things most people have probably experienced when we all got quarantined was suddenly everything was at home, okay? All of us would be ending our days extremely tired. And we're like, why am I so tired? I haven't even left the house. Well, it's because suddenly our brains were having to swap between contexts that were normally distributed. You know, I was writing the book, which I, you know, and then suddenly I'm helping with algebra. Suddenly I'm helping with lunch. Suddenly I'm watching, walking the dog, right? We had all of these different categories and contexts suddenly mushed together. And our brains began having to swap very, very rapidly. One of the warnings we have to, we have to actually uh, think about, though, is that sometimes we do this to ourselves and we shouldn't be, okay? The, our cell phones, our mobile phones, are a, a collection of categories and context, right? So when we are having a conversation and it beeps and we do this and we go to that or, or whatever, we get this, we're neurologically throwing our brain from a library to a soccer field, right? And it's very difficult to come back, and that's exhausting, right? Our brains, it, it taxes our brain. So, so we have to be careful not to do it inadvertently and tax our neurological energy. Wow. And then the last one, the uh, last piece I wanted to talk about, a lot of people think it's, it's kind of uh, fluffy to say you should go after your passion. But when we talk about one of the mental acuity skills or, or one of the facets, which is learnability, you mentioned very specifically when we're doing things we're passionate about, and, and I believe you wrote, and there's an element of intensity in there, that we're able to learn quicker. That to me, I self-discovered and it is unbelievable. I literally am sitting here telling you as a 40-year-old person, I've read just a few books in my life and, and a lot of it was just different. Now I'm starting to see kind of the benefits. Now I'm passionate about improving because I know it's going to enhance my business acumen. Right. I had thought reading before was so I could tell people I read a book this weekend so I could look like I relaxed. But now I'm starting to see the advantage. So I'm not saying necessarily that I'm intense about it, but when it comes to a lot of different things as far as being a business owner, I'm able to learn them faster because yeah. I absolutely care. I'm not trying to be a millionaire tomorrow. Right, right. All right. We talked about kind of perseverance earlier. So how did you make that connection or what have you seen as far as learnability and the ability to be passionate and intense about something? Yeah. So learnability all comes down to this thing called neural plasticity. Okay, yes. That's our, that's Tom Billy talks yeah. about it all the time. Yeah. That's the, the ability for the brain to create neural connections and learn. Okay. Well, as soon as you create a neural connection, neural network, a uh, connection that becomes a network, you've learned something. Okay. New skill, whatever, new piece of information. Plasticity is enhanced by certain neurotransmitters and chemicals, adrenaline, norepinephrine, all those things, I think there's serotonin involved, but those types of chemicals get enhanced depending on what you're doing. So in other words, plasticity increases when you have two things. You have focus and novelty, okay? So when you're focusing on something, focusing on something kind of rather deeply, you're actually creating a burst of these chemicals that's actually helping with plasticity. And then novelty helps too. Something new you haven't seen before, okay, also helps. So focus and novelty are huge. This is why you start reading. That's a novel task you're starting to do that you hadn't done for a while. Adding play or fun into an activity makes it novel. Yes. You know, it's one of the reasons why, or, or even adding music, right? This is why we all remember our ABC song, okay? <laughs> the novelty and focus helps us, like, lock it in. 
something that really can hammer home a neural network really rapidly in plasticity is adding intensity, okay? And we all know this, right? You can tell someone, hey, that stove is hot, don't touch it, okay? Okay, fine. But when we touch that stove and we burn, right, we will never touch that stove again, okay? Intensity actually rapidly increases that, that plasticity as well. So you can deliberately do this. Well, by the way, passion is intensity. When you're passionate about something, you're focused, it's novel, and it's intense, right? That's why when we're, when we're passionate about something, we're learning so rapidly. So, but we can, if we want to learn something and we want to increase our learnability, we can just think about those three factors a little bit and we can implement those three factors as necessary. But it's all about plasticity and it's all about kind of increasing that neurochemistry. Yeah, I want to end by playing a little bit of the devil's advocate though. How many times have you or, or I or anyone doing what we do now or what we used to do have had to intensely focus on something that they weren't necessarily passionate about? Yeah. Like, so yeah. what, what is the drawback or the negative byproduct of that? Well, I don't know if there's a negative byproduct. I mean, you still learn, right? I mean, again, touching the, I'm not passionate about touching a stove, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> to learn that it's hot, right? So, so this is where, by the way, failure and mistakes and where and why those oftentimes teach us so much more than success. Yes. Um, pain is ultimate intensity. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. None of us are passionate about pain, but it's pretty much the ultimate intensity, right? So, so I think there's, um, there's pros and cons, of course, would I necessarily recommend anybody to throw themselves into deliver pain? Not necessarily, depending on what it is. But SEAL training is not fun. I mean, it's pretty painful. <laughs> yeah. um, and again, if you're if it's if it's worked effectively and with with some knowledge, then it then it works. So yeah, you can learn without being passionate about something. It just takes some deliberacy. And if there's pain involved, that's just that's focus and intensity. You know. So to close, where can people find your book or what resources do you have that people could look up? Yeah, well, the best place is theattributes.com, the website. Okay, there you can find the book, you can find the, the free assessment tool, and uh, I threw some workbooks in there that you can get uh, that help you develop each attribute. If you want to develop an attribute, you can it'll guide you through that. So find it there. I'm also on Instagram, um, LinkedIn, yep. um, and there's a Facebook page for the attributes. Awesome. You can get the book wherever the books are sold. Yeah, so. highly, highly recommend. Uh, I'm not even done, but I'm like, all right, this is fantastic. Well, thank you so much for all your time. And to anyone listening, please go follow Rich immediately and check out the book. Uh, it'll be worth your while. You can check out the reviews because they're already very, very stellar. So thanks, and we'll see you next week. All right, everyone. I, I know you got something out of that episode with Rich. If you haven't checked out the attributes, go ahead and check it out. Uh, I'm not even sure if there's an audible book for it, but if there is, definitely check it out. Rich is just a fantastic guy, and I want to do right by him for having done so much research and just brought such an enormous book to the table. So definitely, definitely follow him on Instagram. Uh, leave him a good comment. Leave him a review for the book if you have it or if you check it out and all that good stuff. Uh, last thing I wanted to say is if you're a regular listener, definitely please subscribe, leave a review, a written review, what your thoughts are. I could take it. I don't care if it's bad, all right? Like whatever the feedback is, good or bad, I want it. I'm not afraid of it and I desire it more than anything because I want to do the best possible job for all of you. So please consider leaving a written review. More importantly, share this with someone. Share this with someone who's into podcasting, who's into learning, who's into how-to, who's into education, who's into entrepreneurship. Let them take a test drive on this podcast and see what they think. We will be back next time. Thank you so much. I am so unbelievably happy and grateful for all the support you've given me. See you next week.